think it's God's providence that we are in the passage that we are in today. Um, that's Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And I think if you took a poll, most churchgoers would likely affirm, I hope, that the gospel is indeed good news for every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Sometimes, maybe a lot of the time, the cultures, the systems, and the structures of our churches uh, or ways of life are wrongly elevated to the status of gospel. And, and these things often communicate to others, either implicitly or explicitly, that if they don't do it this particular way, then there's a danger of maybe not being a follower of Jesus. See how that gets twisted to gospel status? Well, in the letter to the Philippians, a letter that Paul is writing from his own prison cell, he encourages his little church in the Roman colony of Philippi to cultivate a peculiar joy in the Lord in the midst of their suffering and sorrow. Now, we turn to chapter 3. Uh, what we discover is that the church in Philippi was being attacked not by the Romans per se, but from other supposed believers in Jesus. Now, the attackers, we need to know something about them. We're going to flesh this out a little bit more. The attackers were ethnically Jewish people who professed Jesus as the Messiah, but who, who still held to this very rigid way of life that essentially went something like this. I am ethnically Jewish, and because of this, I, have, I live a certain way. So think, think of three things here. Circumcision, diet, and purification laws. Each of these things, if you look at the scriptures, they are certainly important things if you are a Hebrew person. They are all throughout the scripture. So, so here's what this group of people were doing. Their, quote, gospel to the Gentiles was this. If you want to follow Jesus, who after all is a Jewish man like us, that's fine, but in order to do that, you have to become Jewish first. And so in other words, Jesus cannot save you unless you submit yourself to circumcision, have a kosher diet, and then stay away from everything that we, defy, or that we deem defiles you. And so there's a couple of issues with that. One, this was essentially a new way of perpetuating their own lack of love and care for non-Jews or Gentiles. And so I want you to think about this. I'm telling you, um, like, like, like uh, what, what, what they're saying is, is, is that you need to rise. You Gentiles need to rise to our definition of, of what the cultural precedent is to be um, part of fellowship with God. To a Gentile in Philippi, that would have not looked or sounded like good news. No doubt some of them tried it. And, it, and it, wasn't, it wasn't not good news because they were resistant to changing their lives, but because nearly everything and every person that they came in contact with would have likely caused them to be ceremonially unclean in the eyes of the Judaizers. And so it's like, if you live in a family and the husband professed faith in Christ and the kids um, did not, or the wife did not, or vice versa, then, then just by nature of being with your family, you would be considered unclean. Can you see what's happening? It's a sneaky trick. 
If, you, if I elevate my particular way of life to gospel status, if I elevate my particular way of worship to gospel status, before I allow you to enter into fellowship with me or my family, you have to change everything about yourself to submit to me and my way of life. Like, if you're familiar with the book of Galatians, that's what, that's what Paul is dealing with there. And that's what he's dealing with here in Philippi. It's a covert way to be racist that is actually shrouded in religious piety. In the book of Galatians, Paul uses very strong language for these people who are leading this church astray. He says, you have such a hyper-focus on circumcision. Um, Why don't you just go ahead and finish the job and emasculate yourselves? That's in the Bible, y'all, and I think it shines a light on what God thinks about um, racists who add to the gospel. Let's unpack the text just a little bit, and and then I want to take a serious look into where we resonate, may be susceptible to doing this in our own church, and how we keep from elevating our own works to the, quote, gospel. Verse chapter... 3 verse 1, Paul writes this. In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me, and it's a safeguard for you. Now, as if Paul had not already been talking about joy in this letter, or rejoicing in the Lord enough. He says it here. He says, in addition, I want you to rejoice in the Lord. Now, what we, see, what we need to see here is that he, what he's doing is communicating another opportunity for the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. It's a theme that has been developing throughout this whole letter thus far. It's the theme of knowing Christ. Back in chapter 2, Paul writes this beautiful, articulate poem about the person and the work of Jesus. And here in chapter 3, he's drawing into focus the work of Jesus and the power of the resurrection and what it looks like to walk in this new creation reality. And we're going to unpack um, like what it looks like to, to, to sort of cultivate knowing Christ next week. We're going to unpack that a little next week. But Paul says here, he's giving this reminder to them that, that, that him restating to them what the true gospel is, is no trouble for him, for him. And we have to ask ourselves, why does he say that? Why is it no trouble for him? And here's what he knows, and we do well in 2020 to recognize this, that resorting to the works of the flesh is just not only true with the Judaizers. It's our default as well. We are resistant to change, we're resistant, we're, 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 we're naturally bent toward being around people that we're most comfortable with. That tends to be people that are like us. That's our default. And we're always, and we're always going to drift toward earning our salvation. We hate the fact that, that, that we bring nothing to our salvation except the sin that caused us to, be need, to need saving in the first place. And then the other, we run, off the, 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 run the other ditch when we, when we have no effort at all. And we're going to talk about that next week. But Dallas Willard reminds us, he says, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. So that's why it's no trouble for Paul to remind us of the gospel. Paul also says, this is a safeguard for the Philippians. It's a safeguard or security for us. 
And it's a safeguard because our security is found by looking squarely on and accepting the work of Christ and the power of his resurrection. And not acknowledging that no one but Christ and Christ alone redeems us. And here's the thing. When we recognize grace in that way, when we recognize that no one but Christ and Christ alone redeems us, then guess what happens to the playing field? It becomes level. Every man, every woman, every child, regardless of race, language, socioeconomic status, whatever, can get in on the grace of God. Because no one does anything to earn it. Notice this, Jesus did not stay comfortable seated in the throne room of heaven and yell down to humanity and say, get like me, guys. No, he leaves the throne room of heaven. He lays aside his privilege and he comes to us not to incarnate a body and to wag the proverbial finger in our face, but to say, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It's as if he's saying, Paul, as if he's saying, stay here. Camp out here. This is your security. What Christ has done. Rejoice in, in this. And so I'm going to invite you just to treasure those things in your heart right now as we read through the next few verses. Verse 2 says this, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are called the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh, although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. Paul says, watch out for the dogs. Now, and I want you to understand something. When Paul mentions dogs, what he doesn't have in mind is your cute, cuddly, labradoodle puppy that you sometimes allow you to lick you, lick you in the face or sleep on your sofa. That's not what he's talking about. In the first century, dogs were about the dirtiest animal you could get. get and, and, and they were scavengers looking for anything to devour. They would run in packs eating scraps of whatever they could find. They would attack people. Um, they, basically, a dog would only find joy in finding his next meal. If someone needed to be attacked in order for him to get the meal, as long as it filled their stomach, nothing was off the table. And if you think about it, there's not very much a dog won't eat. That's pretty gross, right? We know this. Now, this takes a bit of context, but Paul is throwing some serious shade here. Um, because if you ask the Judaizers why they were so careful to do this and to not do that, they would tell you that their whole aim in life is to present themselves as ceremonially clean. They don't eat this or they don't touch that because they believe those things would defile them. And so when Paul calls them dogs, he's saying, hey guys, you may not know it because dogs don't know it, but you seeking to be, quote, clean in your own power is actually the thing that makes you defiled. These dogs that Paul has in mind believe that they are the top of the food chain because of their own strength and ability and their pedigree. You see, they pay lip service to Jesus, but really, they don't believe they need the way of Jesus. What they're holding up is their own way, that it's for people just like them. 
The Judaizers believed that Gentiles had to become Jewish before they could become followers of Jesus. And so this imports onto Gentiles a way of life that was totally foreign for them. Judaizers were self-righteous because they believed their actions and their way of life is what makes them acceptable to God. Paul says this, I know that old song and dance. He brings the actions of the Judaizers into comparison with his own resume, and he says, hey, circumcised on the eighth day, check, that's me. Born of the nation of Israel, check, tribe of Benjamin, and in case you don't know this, Benjamin was the only tribe out of the 12 tribes that stayed loyal to Judah, check. Paul said, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, nobody knows exactly what that means, but I'll bet it's important, check. Regarding the law, a Pharisee, in that time, you couldn't get much more strict or conservative than a Pharisee. Check. He says, I even persecuted the church in my zeal. Check. He says, you could look at my life and ministry, and there would be no gaps when you compare me to other people. From a human perspective, people would have looked at the life of Paul, and they would have said, this man is blameless. Check. Now listen to what Paul says about all this beginning in verse 7. He says, but everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and, not, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. Get this. Paul says, everything that was important to me Everything that I valued as my worth, my righteousness prior to Jesus, he says, I count it as loss. And then he ups the ante just a little bit. He, he says, I consider all of those things as if loss wasn't a strong enough word. I consider all of these things as dung or excrement. And just so you know, Paul is using the strongest word he has at his disposal in order to communicate how he feels about his resume in comparison to Christ. Make no mistake, the word dung, you can look it up in the Greek, it is an expletive. And you know the expletive that we would use for that. And here's why, because Paul knows after 25 plus years of living in Christ Jesus that there is nothing better than just knowing Jesus and following his way and clinging to his robe and clinging to his righteousness. Here's something that we also learn from Paul. Wrongly believing that our own rituals, our own traditions, our, our cultures are, are, where, are, are the places where our righteousness comes from can, will, and has led to some pretty destructive places over the years. Right? It led Paul to be a persecutor and ravager of the Christian church. This is a man speaking who murdered people in the name of God because he thought it was right. Think about the atrocities over the ages. Hitler and Nazi Germany, just so you know, Hitler had the backing of the German church. The Inquisition 
in the name of God, the Crusades in the name of God, the, the transcontinental slave trade, Jim Crow, because people um, counted African Americans as, as less than abortion. We, have to, we get to a place where when we look at a human being and we see them as less than, then there's no end to the atrocities that, that can be done to that person. If we elevate our own race or nation or whatever above anybody else's, then, then the negative step of that is to go to one of these bad places. What's true about all those things that I just mentioned is that they all highlight someone in a position of political, physical, or spiritual power elevating their own pedigree or thought or theology above everyone else's. And because they have made an idol out of their pedigree or their works, it causes them to devalue the image of God in another human being. Get like me or get away. That's the message. And to keep you away... Uh, no, I want you. I want you in, but I'm going to create systems and structures that you can't that you can't keep that kind of that kind of push you away, or I'll kill you if I have to. Now, here's the hope. Here's the actual good news: the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus showed Paul, and he shows us that the truest way to be a human is the way of servant, the way of emptying. Y'all remember that poem from Philippians chapter 2? If you don't, go back and read it. You see, in the life of Jesus, we see him not only leaving the throne room of heaven in the incarnation. The text says, not counting equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Here's the thing. Jesus didn't count equality with God as a thing to be grasped or to hold on to, or the CSB says exploited. But also, Jesus didn't count equality with sinners as a thing to be grasped because what we see in John 13 is that brother taking the role of a foot washer, stooping down to wash the nasty feet of the disciples. He took the lowest place in order to serve us in, in the most needed way, even to the point of death on a cross. As a church, like, let's not get it twisted. We are not perfect. None of you think we do, but sometimes we think we do, right? As a church, we have a culture. Spoiler alert, every church has a culture. And it just is. That's the way it is. When you get people together, it's a culture. And the way that we flavor our church culture is going like we, Lord, help us to be a seeing and a listening church. A church that's willing to, to have our culture flavored with the fingerprints and giftedness and voices of all types of people. We need this. The way that this happens is through emptying, as Paul talks about. It's through people um, who have a privileged position. Some of y'all are going to hate that word. You know what? At this point, I don't care because if I'm wrong, the Lord's going to convict me. And if I'm, and if I'm right, the Lord's going to convict you. It's through people who have a privileged position laying aside that privilege for the sake of elevating those who have been unheard and overlooked. You can disagree with me all you want to about that fact or my language here, but you cannot disagree that that is what you are going to see in the New Testament in the life and teaching of Jesus. Jesus was the embodiment of good news to every type of person in every type of place. 
His life brings healing and redemption and an invitation to follow him and a promise to be transformed and a promise to be sent with the very same power that the Father gave him and sent to make more disciples. When Paul bookends this controversial topic with rejoice, what, what we must see clearly is that he is telling us that rejoicing comes in emptying ourselves of everything that prevents us from truly focusing on Jesus as the one true king. And when we focus on Jesus as the embodiment of good news, hear this. When we focus on Jesus as the embodiment of the good news and we live in his way and we practice, we practice his way. Practice means we are learning. We're not going to be perfect at it. When we embody the good news, our lives will attract and invite the very same people that the life of Jesus um, in, uh, attracted and invited. Hear me say this. We don't pursue being multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-economic, multi-nations, or multifaceted as an end in and of itself. We pursue this because we pursue Jesus. Does that, does that resonate with you, family? We've seen it all in Philippians so far. We're, we, we are suffering in a broken world. We can rejoice that the gospel advances in these times, even, even when we even when, when we feel that the world is at its worst. And for some of you, I know that you cannot fathom how it could get any worse. Even when we feel it, it's at its worst. I didn't know George Fuller. I didn't know George Fuller. But, I, but I've read enough about him from the people who knew and who loved and who worshipped with George Fuller to safely say one thing about him. In the miscarriage of justice that is that man's murder, I believe George Fuller would agree we pray, may the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ advance. May the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ advance. May the good news of Jesus give us the space to stop what we are doing and to weep, to cry out in our anger, to listen to someone if they need to vent it on us, to take it, to mourn and to grieve and to listen and to rest in and to be strengthened and empowered by the hope of the good news of Jesus Christ as our King. Here's Paul's stated goal, verses 10 and 11. Anytime a scripture says, this is my goal, we do well to highlight it. Verses 10 and 11 say this. My goal is to know Him, that's Christ, and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Church, knowing the power of the resurrection, hear this, hear this. Knowing the power of the resurrection, by definition, means that something has to die. Christ died for our redemption. 
but not just for our redemption. If, if, if Christ just died for our redemption, then when, we, then when we get saved, when we come to saving knowledge of Jesus, then he'd take us out of the world. He redeemed us to be a new creation people. A people who are dying to their own privilege and their own righteousness and their own ideas for the sake of others. Y'all, that is the way of Jesus. That's what it looks like to bring resurrection life and push back the curse. We talk about this all the time. And look at this. We see, we see this resurrection power on display in the pages of the book of Acts on Pentecost. Just so you know, today's Pentecost Sunday. We see this happen when the church is born. The day that the church was born, the Holy Spirit, working through 120 men and women, caused the mighty deeds of God to be proclaimed in power so that the, the tribes and the tongues and the nations who were present there could hear the good news of the gospel in their own native tongue. Not just in Hebrew, not just in Aramaic, but in Greek, in all those other languages. Today, brothers and sisters, is Pentecost Sunday. And here's what I pray. That we resonate church would mark today as a rebirth. That we would mark today as a rebirth. Um, a day that we look back on and say, May the 31st, 2020, through the muck and the mire, the travesty and the injustice and sorrow and sickness and the death and racism and frustration and self-righteousness, we collectively turned our attention to Christ. And in our looking at Christ, our hearts moved in compassion toward one another, seeking to be a light in the midst of this damnable darkness that we live among and, and just praying, Lord, I pray that we would see one another, to hear one another, and that you would crush every way that we seek to broker our own power and our own authority and look down our noses at others. In the midst of this chaos, Lord, we pray that you would say, let there be light. I said this earlier, and this begs repeating. Resonate Church, we must take responsibility as individuals and as a body. What would it really look, to see, look like to see and to really hear people of color who are making concessions to be in a predominantly white church? Proximity breeds compassion. If we won't get to know people's stories and experience who are closest to us, we certainly won't reach out to anyone else. What would it look like to turn our prayer gatherings into a boiler room for prayer for the kingdom to come in such a way that all men, all women, all children actually felt equal with one another in Christ? Talk about church unity all the time. That's where it starts. Ground at the cross is level. I don't really have any questions to ask this week. I just want to stop and pray and give some prayer prompts. Stop right now where you are. And just ask how you can be a voice for the voiceless. Talking about being a church for the city. Family, our city, if you watched the news last night or this morning, our city is torn apart. It didn't just start 
with looting and rioting last night, just so you know. We've been sick for a long time. So let's be a people for our city and pray for our city. God, bring renewal. Let's be mindful to pray for the families of those who have been victims of racist, racist attacks. Especially from people who are in authority. Let's pray for protests to be heard and for violence to cease and for love to abound, the love of Christ to abound. And then this is a personal, individual prayer. Lord, would you show me how I need to empty myself in a specific way to see or hear someone different than you. To see or to see or hear someone different than me. Sorry. There's those prompts. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to take communion together. Father, we praise you for making your truth real to us in Christ Jesus. Help us to fix our eyes on him, the word of life, so that we would embody the glorious good news here in our community. We ask that what we do, how we live, and the way we love, Lord, may it increasingly become a worthy response. Amen and amen.